Hello and welcome to the Meta Hour podcast with Sharon Salzberg. I'm Lily Cushman. I produce this podcast and we're returning today to our ongoing mental health series here on the Meta Hour for episode 227, a conversation with Harvard-trained psychiatrist, Columbia-trained Buddhist scholar, the assistant professor of clinical psychiatry in integrative medicine at Wild Cornell Medical College, and the founder of Nalanda Institute, Joe Luizzo. Joe has 40 years experience studying both Eastern and Western approaches to mental health. And we've been working on lining up this interview for him to be part of the mental health series for quite some time. I'm so happy it finally came together. The conversation starts with Joe's background, how he came to the field of mental health, and also just how that field has evolved to where we are now. Both he and Sharon discuss a lot of interesting nuance to mental health care plans and the stigma around treatment, as well as how much the events on the larger world stage affect the personal. And also Joe's impetus for founding Nalanda Institute, all the great work that the Institute is doing. There's also some fun backstory here about this pivotal role that Joe played in Sharon's early teaching career. And as always, some of the tools that we can apply to learn how to work with our minds and the compassionate approach to the human condition. And as always, you can check our show notes for some different mental health resources, links that our different guests on this series have recommended, and you're in for a great conversation. Before we get to that, a short announcement. Sharon has a bunch of virtual events she's doing in the coming months. I encourage you to check out her teaching schedule. And one of those is happening on November 13th, a six-week online course that is being hosted by Tricycle Online. It is the Real Life course. And this course is really a deep dive into the teachings of Sharon's book by the same name that came out earlier this spring. So if you are looking for a way to go deeper with that book, these teachings of working with states of contraction and isolation and moving into expansion, this course may be for you. So you can visit SharonSalzberg.com and there's information to register there. So let's get to today's episode. Joe Luizzo and Sharon Salzberg. Hello, Joe. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Sharon. So lovely to hear your voice. It's lovely to hear yours. How are you? Where are you recording from today? From Manhattan, from our home uh in Lenape land overlooking the Hudson. Nice. So we are recording this in October of 2023. There's a tremendous amount of suffering in the conflict in the Middle East. It feels important to mention as it's on so many people's hearts and minds. And, you know, 
I realize that there are many people who just in their daily lives feel as if they're in a war zone. Uh, that's important to acknowledge as well. Um, it's good to come together today, and uh, especially in these times of uh, tremendous conflict and and distress, talk about how we can support ourselves and ultimately support one another in this very complicated world. So, Joe, you and I have known each other for a long time now. You've been in the field of mental health for much of your career. You're a psychiatrist and a clinical researcher with a focus on integrating neuroscience with contemplative practice. And since this episode is a part of what we're calling our mental health series here on the podcast, we'll be centering around those topics. So I'd love to hear more about your journey in this field and how you came to be interested in psychiatry. Okay. That's a, uh, a big question. Um, <laughs> well, although, so I think I've mentioned that I consider my, myself kind of the product of a double blind experiment, right? Because my parents uh, took different avenues or paths in responding to the challenge of being immigrants in the U.S., Italian background. Uh, and my dad became uh, kind of assimilated, uh, became a psychiatrist. Um, so sometimes I say my, my profession is an inherited condition. Uh, but uh, my mom chose to be a teacher. And, uh, and well, he kind of gave up his spirituality um, and became more sort, sort of science-oriented. Um, she stayed very close to her, uh, Catholic roots was very quiet about it, but it clearly, uh, I sort of followed their trajectories and where he got more and more burnt out. He loved his work. It was really fascinating having people come and go in the, in his home office. I could see them really sitting in there talking. I thought, well, what a nice way to work. You, you know, you just spend your time having conversations and everybody seemed to enjoy it. Um, my, at the same time, I think the emotional stress slowly burned him out. And uh, whereas my mom uh, seemed to get better with age. So I thought, well, there must be something mm. in what she's doing. I, I want some of what she has, right? Um, so I, it was pretty early in my teens, I started reading Jung and felt like there must be some way to reintegrate spirituality or contemplative uh, life back into uh, modern life. And psychotherapy seemed a kind of potential bridge. Um, so that's kind of how I got started. Um, and uh, yeah, then the, the rest of the journey really kind of got more complicated from there. <laughs> Well, the field of psychiatry itself has evolved so much in the past decades and is still evolving. And I'm sure you've seen lots and lots of changes from when you first began studying. So I wonder if you can speak to that. And certainly there have been a lot of changes in terms of the incorporation or acceptance of contemplative practice. Yeah, I mean, I have to say overall for my field, you know, the time that I became aware of, psycho of psychiatry and psychotherapy in the in the 60s and 70s, it was a very vibrant time for the field. Uh, there was the, the sort of influx of psychoanalysis. People were writing, you know, like Eric Fromm and Viktor Frankl and 
you know, Rollo made, there was an, there was a real interest in popular health, uh, kind of the culture and infusing some kind of, uh, existential wisdom or larger kind of positive outlook <laughs> into our, into our way of life. And I would say pretty much starting about as I went into, uh, uh, medical school and residency, the field started shifting very much in the opposite direction, exactly where I didn't want it to go. (laughs) Instead of getting more involved in kind of channeling spiritual contemplative wisdom practice and, and ethics, it got more and more materialistic, more and more reductionistic. Um, And I think, unfortunately, my colleagues have kind of taken you know, I, I don't want to be too dramatic about it, but I really feel like they've trashed the discipline by mm-hmm. kind of in, in, a, in a way, uh, you, you know, you could say getting too enamored of the, the quick fix and the psychopharmacology. You could also say selling out in a way because we know that, of course, that's an industry. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm hoping, I do think one of the hopeful things about the confluence of Western psychotherapy and, and, uh, you know, largely Buddhist contemplative practice, but contemplative practice in in general, uh, is that it is kind of bucking the trend and that plus the new discovery of neuroplasticity, which is kind of given a little more sciency kind of grounding or, or credibility to the simple thing of talking to others or doing things like meditating. Um, that's also helping. So my hope is that the field is going to have a little renaissance and move more toward, um, you know, uh, back toward the psyche, you know, toward the spirit and the and the soul, human, uh, you know, mind and soul, and away from drugs. You know. Mm. Well, I'm very curious about these times and and whether, you know, when. Uh, there are just devastating things happening in the world. Do you find that people are, are somewhat less likely to try to get personal help for their own dilemma in these tumultuous times because it feels like their own suffering just cannot measure up to the awful, awful experience others are having? I, I mean, I, of course, I may have like a, a, a kind of biased perspective because people... You know who, who come, really come to me are self-selected. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but I feel it's more like the opposite that people, uh, you know, bring their personal angst, and and part of their personal angst is the collective angst. Uh-huh. So that I do think that there's a kind of breaking down of the sense of the barriers. I think the hyper individualism of the U.S. culture, and especially kind of the in, since the the baby boom era, the whole kind of last decades, uh, people are becoming more aware of our interconnection with others and the need for, you know, the culture to change. I mean, of course, the culture has also gone over the cliff in so many ways. It's become much clearer that uh, that it that our problems are not just personal, <laughs> um, but you know. I think that uh, people are bringing in their issues with, you know, the the collective traumas that are happening and how it activates them 
um, and whether that be in the realm of you know racial trauma, gender, you know patriarchy, and, and which is on the rise, uh, you know, and um, or it be uh, ethnic uh, conflict or religious conflict, it's uh, you know a lot of you know, these themes are are coming up, and to me that I'm very, that's very welcome because I do think that we've overestimated in, in modern psychotherapy and psychology, as in modern science and culture in general, we've overestimated how, you know, the, 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 how separate we are. And like the, the Buddhist wisdom is, is, is kind of being acknowledged that, that uh, you know, that we're really such communal connected animals that we, uh, we're, 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 we're suffering with, one another and not just with our own, you know, family or psyche. And on that note, I'm going to ask you a question I've asked for probably more than 30 years when I've been on different panels and, and such with psychotherapists, um, uh, which is basically the question is, is your uh, envisioning like a care plan for a, a client, a patient, does it ever involve like, service or taking care of others or finding a way to help someone else? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. In the sense that, first of all, I mean, I think our health and well-being, one of the beautiful things about, you know, the, the cross-validation, like the last, I would say in the last two or three decades, a lot of domains in science and neuroscience and psychology have been validating sort of ancient contemplative spiritual values. <laughs> um, so the whole idea of the importance of love and of loving connection, whether it be with individuals or community, uh, is really becoming, you know, increasingly kind of something we can talk about and something people are aware of. And so a lot of what I do is has to do with helping people work on their relationships with others in the world to try to take some of the alienation and, and trauma out of it and to try to have develop more empathy, more, you know, skillful compassion, not necessarily wise compassion, as they said, not necessarily sentimental, um, but <clears throat> recognizing how important it is to uh, try to shift the quality of our engagement with others. And so, yeah, part of that might be really supporting people in their wish to make a difference, you know, it, so it starts with taking care of themselves, obviously, right? But, uh, that, you know, pretty soon that's like learning, because that's so interconnected with relationships, it's learning how to navigate complicated relationships with, with partners, with kids, with loved ones. With, but then we're talking about, you know, how do you engage with the world, with the institutions around you, with your professional life? And, and I do think that for me, uh, change really starts to get to happen and get more positive when people realize that contributing, being part of, you know, uh, you know the change you want to see to use the cliche, right? To, you know, trying to kind of uh, commit oneself to, you know, the, the kind of... Uh, you know, being doing something helpful for oneself, really helpful in the sense of not the way we live, not just simply fitting into the cog of the machine that's 
that's heading over the cliff, <laughs> but really trying to resist that and find ways of being um, in community or or at work or with uh, you know in in your career that are adding to a greater sense of responsibility for the for for the culture we live in for the planet we uh-huh. live on. You know, so I think that that's I, I'm not say you know I'm not some I'm not one for for plans because I my you know I've, I I think it's a journey and I tended to follow the the lead of you know where people are evolving, <laughs> uh-huh. but but I think when things are really clicking, when I know we're on the right channel is when people are thinking about how to how to heal their relationships with others and with the world uh, and, the, and I'd say the planet and history and all of those things. That's beautiful. Um, and historically, you know, in, in a way connected to that because treating one's mental health sometimes feels removed from day-to-day life, which of course it's really not. But historically, there's a tremendous amount of stigma around mental health care. Even the term mental health is now one of my new bugaboos, you know, because I was talking to somebody the other day and I was saying, really, we're not talking about mental health. You know, we're talking about feeling a lack of mental health or, you know, a great imbalance in our mental state, but we can't call it anything other than mental health because it wouldn't look pretty enough or something. So historically, there's a tremendous amount of stigma around mental health care, which feels like it's shifting in a big way, perhaps in current time with Gen Z. and. What do you see in that regard? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think this part of our hyper-individual culture has been to kind of pretend that we're all separate and that we, you know, that our happiness depends, you know, like uh, on, on our actions alone. And, and the flip side of that is our suffering is separate and our suffering depends on somehow it's our fault. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. If we're, if we're suffering in mind or heart or body or whatever nervous system. And so I think that, and you know, unfortunately one of the side effects of our, of our hyper-individualist culture and of our kind of Calvinist, like capitalist culture of like, you know, what real happiness is, is, you know, being so crushing it in the world, being super successful, you know, having your ego blown up and your bank account blown up, you know, I think is that people who don't really, who are either oppressed by that system because they just don't, they're not in the club or they're not in the, whether it's racially, gender wise or culturally, whatever, or people who don't really want that like who don't have it in them to go out and crush things, you know, um, get stigmatized. And so I, I think, first of all, that there's, there's a lot of research in terms of modern stress psychology and, and uh, you know, and positive psychology from both sides to show that a lot of things we diagnose as mental disorders, quote unquote, are actually the function, are actually products of chronic exposure to stress and trauma. Mm. And that chronic exposure to stress and trauma isn't just individual childhood. It's also social environment, cultural environment. Um, so, so I think what, what a lot of people are really waking up to is challenging this whole notion of sort of blaming the, the individual 
that the, the mental health in a way has this tendency to label um, and, and personalize, to privatize uh, suffering as if it's in you. And, and to add, as you pointed out, this negative valuation of like, if you're sensitive, if you're the canary in the coal mine and you're not happy, you're not thriving in, in, a, in a dysfunctional, violent world, then there's something wrong with you. Mm. You know what I mean? Uh, so I think I have strong feelings about this. I mean, I think that, that uh, the tide is turning and people are becoming much more aware that, you know, uh, of how sensitive we are to the toxic elements in our culture, in our lifestyle, in our environment. Um, and, and part of that is less, I do think in the younger generation, like I know with my kids, I have two, uh, you know, one 18 year old and one 21 year old. Um, and their generation, you know, is much more upfront about, yeah, I'm, I'm, I got this and I got that and I'm taking this and I'm taking that. And here's what, you know, my, my family situation is. So I think that there's, there's uh, both a kind of uh, greater acceptance that we're human and we all have, uh, you know, vulnerabilities and also a recognition that part of the problem is that the way we're supposed to function is not healthy or is violent or is harmful. Mm-hmm. And so like in, like a, in school is a perfect example, you know, like I was just talking to somebody who works at the Columbia Health Center, Columbia University Health Center mentioned that there were four suicides. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, why is that? Like, is it those kids have a mental problem? I mean, you know, it's very clear that we're not creating an environment where people feel safe and, yeah. and, jo- and have joy in quite the opposite. <laughs> and then you put that together with, you know, A, we're actually destroying the planet. You know, you, you kind of, the picture, it's becoming clearer that we're, there's, there's something fundamentally wrong with the way we've been living and what we expect of people and that the people who have for a long time been gaslighted or yeah. stigmatized as, hey, what's wrong with you? You know, uh, we now can maybe see more clearly um, we're just, you know, often in many ways impacted negatively. You know, we're the canaries in the coal mine of a system that was harmful and, and maybe, uh, you know, uh, you know, also really kind of are conscientious objectors too, in a way, like just don't want to be part of something that really is, you know, kind of not very constructive or humane. Well, there's so much blame, you know, that's so unjust. Like I, I think of um, listening to you, I'm thinking of Diego Perez or Young Pueblo, this is pen name, who was on the podcast. And uh, he said that the most traumatic thing he had lived through uh, in his life was not a kind of sudden, sharp incident. It was kind of the chronic poverty within which he grew up. And that left a, a real mark. So I th- just now I was thinking, listening to like, we blame the kid even, you know, for being poor and, and sort of look down on them and, and somewhat disdainful of them. And then we blame the now older kid for responding to that trauma, you know, taking drugs or whatever they're doing is what in his case it was that till he began meditating. And so, uh, you know, and, it's just a strange environment instead of saying, this is a survivor, you know, look at that. Exactly. I totally agree. And I think, unfortunately, the prof- my profession has 
I'm talking about psychiatry in particular, although I think generally this is true of most mainstream mental health, has kind of been, has drunk the Kool-Aid and has gone along acting as if, labeling people as if it's really true that they have ADHD or they're, or they're oppositional or they're, or they're uh, you know, that, that begin, the story begins and ends that they're an addict or whatever, um, or they have depression. Um, and and really are not looking at the context of the you know the the larger cultural social familial kind of legacies that really have we know from research like that have so much to do like our main our really primary inputs in terms of our development. So you know, and you see it in little ways, just in terms of you know uh, young kids, you know kids going into into middle school and high school. I have a lot of clients who have, you know, kids at that age. Mm-hmm. And the pressures, you know, the, the, the system, you know, gives, it puts such a kind of a burden on them of hyper performance. Um, and if they're, you know, they're, they're staying up and, you know, all hours. Um, and, um, you know, if they're kind of, they happen to be, you know, boys who are who are you know not nerdy and and you know kind of normal physical animals or or you know girls who who want safe connection with their peers or whatever um the system is really telling them there's something wrong with them mm-hmm. and uh and that you know it, and it's really compounding the problem which i think is part of the reason why um you know, we have such a quote-unquote mental health crisis, you know. So in 2007, seems like a million years ago, you founded the Nalanda Institute for Contemplative Science, an educational nonprofit. So maybe you can tell us more about that work. Yeah, so Nalanda Institute is the kind of the, the outcome or the fruition of my, you know, path, you know, my sort of, you know, odd path or whatever (laughs) road not taken of trying to bring together, you know, mental health and these kinds of considerations of what's a sane way of living uh, together with uh, the Buddhist tradition, particularly I was uh, raised in the, in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition and hence the word Nalanda refers to the uh, you know, the world's first university, Nalanda University in North India, which gave rise to the form of Buddhism that later spread to Tibet. And hence, you know, the, the Dalai Lama and other Tibetans often think of Tibetan Buddhism as the Nalanda tradition. But I found it, I was at the time I was, um, I mean, after many years of having to keep my interests a secret from my mental health peers because they would diagnose me and put me in whatever. Um, you know, um, given the John Kabat-Zinn and some basic research, the discovery of neuroplasticity and everything, mm-hmm. uh, by the time in the nineties, uh, Buddhism became popular and mindfulness became, uh, an acceptable or even cool thing in mental health. Um, but, and at the time was, I was, I was at Columbia, I was doing, uh, graduate studies in Tibetan and um, and it was also in the psychiatry department and I and they asked me to found a center 
uh, in, in, I call it the Center for Meditation and Healing at Columbia. Um, you know, but, uh, but very soon I realized that the corporation, you know, you know the, the hospital was not a place where, where we could have the kind of space, a safe space to explore all the things that we need to explore and to connect in the ways we need to connect. Um, I, I sometimes, you know, remember and kind of the rec- rec- remember the irony that in the psychiatry department, I could teach meditation because now it was cool, but I couldn't teach the Dharma. I couldn't teach ethics or philosophy or psychology mm-hmm. from Buddhism. Um, in, this, in the religion department, I could teach ethics and philosophy and psychology, but I couldn't teach people to actually do anything about it, like mm-hmm. meditate or change their life. So that just gives you a flavor for how, you know, even in the sort of very fancy uh, academic, you know, uh, institution, uh, there really wasn't room for the heart or the whole human being to learn a new way of being human. So that's part of why I founded the Institute was to create a space that was sort of off the grid a little bit of the corporate culture and, and the kind of knowledge production engines and all of that, that, uh, that, uh, have taken over academia. And, um, and yeah, the Institute has been, you know, it's, it's been a great gift because it's been a kind of, uh, open community where people like you come and teach. And I, so I get to sort of continue to, to connect and dialogue with, with, uh, like-minded peers who are trying to make a shift in, in our way of being. And also obviously people, students of, from all different backgrounds who really don't just want to, you know, uh, you know, do sort of simple mindfulness, right? Uh, like the, the kind of the, the pop vanilla, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, want to go deeper or want to learn the psychology or want to really learn the ethics or the, you know, be in a community where, um, where they can um, really experiment with their way of being and connecting. Um, and so we have really, you know, as you know, like awesome students who are really kind of looking for something uh, that's, that, you know, that's, that's heading in a different direction, let's say. That's fantastic. I just want to, I don't want to, Go further without giving you due honor for the, the tremendous influence you've had in my own life, which was uh, low these many years ago. Um, I don't know if we'd ever met actually, but uh, I had a friend who uh, was coming out of a kind of long hospitalization for psychiatric condition at Columbia. And uh, I was looking through some booklet or something like that, and I saw you were teaching an aftercare program meditation and uh i wanted to be able to accompany my friend to these classes he very much wanted to go and uh but i didn't want to have to pay because it was quite expensive (laughs) since it wasn't covered by my insurance and so i called you and left you a message and i said uh you know i'm sharon salzberg and i've been meditating a long time myself but uh i wonder how you would feel about my coming along with my friend and auditing this class i'm so happy you're offering it and uh, it seemed like a great set of skills for people to have as they were uh, leaving more of a crisis situation and coming back into the world and and left your message. And you called me back and, and you said to me, why don't you teach him? And I thought, oh, oh, I could teach him. 
And so a friend offered me an apartment in New York and I spent, you know, six months in New York and uh, I had this little sitting group, which was like four or five people, which was included this friend and, uh, and it changed my entire life. So thank you. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, is that more common now that people might be offered those kinds of tools? Yeah, and thank you so much for remember for reminding me of that, and and you know it's uh, uh, it's an honor to be involved in any way in your in your trajectory because we all so grateful to you for for the voice and the humanity you brought to this to to the world, but specifically to the culture of of uh, you know contemplative life in in, in the U.S. Thank you. Um, you know. Yeah, I do think that part of where we live at Nalanda Institute, and I think this is not just unique to my community or our community, but but it's true of the movement in general, is that there is a kind of blurring because there's so much adoption in mental health of mindfulness and now self-compassion and maybe even compassion practices, um, you know, that um, that there's a lot of people who are not mental health professionals who are either yoga teachers or meditation teachers or coaches who use these things or teachers who use these things or human resource people who use them. Um, and so there's a much more of a, uh, one of the beautiful things about the culture of contemplative, uh, you know, practice and uh, is, is that it is much more empowering. It's not, it's not so professionalized. It's not so like, you know, hey, you have to have these, you know, things on the wall. Uh Um, And so I do think that a lot of our students who, from many different backgrounds and not just uh, mental health backgrounds, uh, are finding ways to be helpful and to bring what they've learned in their own life about contemplative practice to others. And we very much support that because, you, you know, it can't just be a professionalized thing like we all need this medicine has to be we we all have to learn you know how how to uh uh share what we what, what's helped us right i mean like there's so much help is needed mm-hmm. that's for sure and that actually opens up uh the next thing i was going to ask you which is an impossible question uh, but maybe it makes it more specific so uh it's almost like the con- what's the contrast between buddhist psychology uh, and more Western psychology as an approach. But one of them, one of the differences, uh, I get asked that, you know, all the time. Well, I bet not as much as you. Uh, you know, one of the differences would be just that. It would be, okay, what can I as an individual uh, do, you know, today about my life in a, a real sense of tools? You know, I, I have some basic tools that I can use. And another distinction, um, I don't know if it's a distinction because I know much more about Buddhist psychology or Eastern psychology than Western, but, um, you know, as I was taught uh, as a meditation student, uh, you know, ways of sitting with painful feeling, whether it's emotional pain or physical pain, at the same time not being defined by the pain, not judging myself for what I was feeling, and because of that non-judgment, being able to look more deeply into it. So if I was feeling 
a great deal of craving and desire and I could sit with it and look at it, maybe I'd find a lot of loneliness inside of it or sitting, you know, seething with anger and I could sit and be with it. I'd find kind of a helplessness, sense of helplessness that was at its core. No matter what I was feeling, being able to see directly the impermanent nature of it. So that doesn't mean invalidating the feeling, but it's creating a different context within which we experience it, a context of awareness and compassion. So I'm wondering if that resembles the process of healing from the Western psychotherapeutic perspective. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, there's so many, the traditions are so incredibly kind of uncannily similar in a lot of ways. And yet, obviously, there's real differences. So uh, I think that, you know, you can often, one way to think about what, uh, how the two relate is that in a way, therapy is kind of like an assisted meditation. You know what I mean? Like you have somebody else who's kind of helping you get into a meditative relationship with yourself to, and teaching you how to be with and observe and tolerate your own suffering. Mm -hmm. Um, And then hopefully what often doesn't get emphasized is that you learn how to do it yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, And of course the beautiful thing about the contemplative traditions is there's much less stigma or, or pathologizing it. it, Mm -hmm. Suffering is really much more embraced, welcomed as not, abnormal, something to be feared and, and labeled and, and, and killed off, mm-hmm. but, as, but as just part of reality that maybe is, can be approached in a way that is generative or that is healing, that gives us information. Or, um, so there's that uh, depathologizing and, and kind of fundamentally positive message in, in, the, in the Buddhist psychology that we can really deal with our suffering, whatever it is. And we can also transform it and, and grow beyond it or, or tolerate it in a way that allows us to still thrive. And uh, then all the tools that come in the Buddhist tradition to help us do that. It's like, you know, instead of just being a patient, quote unquote, you know, like that there's somebody who's not active or not an agent, uh, it, Buddhist psychology really prepares you to actively engage with your suffering, which we're not all ready to do all the time. Like, so, the, so the nice thing about Western psychology is there's a lot more personalized, individualized help and support than you often find in Buddhist communities where it's more about large, teaching large groups or large groups, you know, kind of being human together, trying to deal with human suffering as a collective condition. Um, so, so, you know, it's... It's nice, you know, to have that kind of individualized attention to how did you suffer and, and, and the kind of support is something that might only be found in the Buddhist medical system rather than in Buddhist psychology per se. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I think, um, you know, the two traditions uh, really reinforce each other in a lot of ways because I do think that that um, you know the emphasis on kind of going deeper into the personal psyche with with, with help from others, like having a really close. I think of therapy as having a really 
close relationship with your teacher. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? And some of us are lucky enough to have that, but most people that study the Dharma in Asia, as in the West, just have classes. Yeah. And then it never gets very individualized. And so I also think that there's something unique about the about the Western approach to understanding uh, our, our childhood and the early development, uh, um, you know, that, that does help kind of uh, share the suffering a little bit, like the specifics of the suffering, the specific story. But again, like a good teacher would do that anyway. A good Buddhist teacher would do that. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm, I, I think the two... You know, overall, I would say what Buddhism brings is a much more optimistic relationship with suffering, yeah, and a much more optimistic sense of our capacity to hold it, so that it doesn't have to be like, "Gee, you know, I can't, I can't handle this. I have to. Only my therapist can handle it." Right. Um, and and also, it brings to make that kind of a reality. It brings the tools and the trainings that strengthen us so that in a way we we're we're almost like our own little mental health professional in our own mind um which is which has always been true one of the beautiful things about buddhist uh the buddhist learning is that medicine and healing has always been seen as part of the basic training um, because there was an understanding that that to be a meditator to be a healthy successful contemplative you know finding happiness or or whatever awareness you you needed to know about your health and heal yourself and and i think the same relationship exists in terms of the learning how to deal with your own negativity um but the optimism comes from a sense that again there's something about the western medical model which tends to kind of pathologize and and other eyes or or uh, uh demonize in a way like suffering yeah. as if oh you've got this like a cancer yeah you know and uh and it, we just got to get it out like you can't have that in your mind or you have it in mind oh poor you you have it in your mind whereas in buddhism there's really a sense that all mental suffering is just part of human life yeah. And it's not so, it's not so bad. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? Like there's, you, you can have a, you can accept it and be in relationship with it, whatever it is, however dark, however convoluted, it isn't something that's beyond you or that you're powerless yeah. over. Yeah. Yeah. Your awareness is stronger. Your compassion actually is stronger. Yeah. When it's applied, but we should talk some time about demonizing cancer. Which yeah. Is another. It, it is another topic for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Um, it's just all of this is really fascinating because I hadn't really thought about modern Asia. I thought, I think more about, as you say, my experience has been a very close relationship with each of my teachers, you know, for over 50 years now, which is an amazing blessing. And it's uncommon, you know, it's just, and these days, you know, of course I encounter people who's first and maybe long term acquaintance with, meditation practices through an app. Right. And I was just talking to somebody the other day who works on such an app and saying how, um, you know, when at one point I was instructed when I was guiding meditation on it that 
I had to say a few words. And then every time I was becoming silent, I had to then say, now it's your turn to do this. Mm-hmm. And, and I said, I don't really want to do that, you know, because like I'm myself meditating, I'm engendering to the best of my ability a certain energy. I don't want to interrupt that. I'm happy to say in the beginning, when I become silent, that's your signal to put into practice what I've just suggested or something to set the stage. But I don't want to keep saying it. And they said to me, you don't understand. Like people keep writing and saying things like, my app is broken. <laughs> it's not working right at this minute, you know? And I was like, oh my gosh, you know, like that's different. Um, and also, I mean, there's nothing that uh, is comparable until we can do it ourselves, as you say, to somebody loving you no matter what, you know? Mm-hmm. And there they are, and, and you're just closing whatever, and, and they're still there, uh, which is kind of incredible. Um, um, you know, thinking about all these many things, which as far as I know, have come from the Eastern world, you know, self-compassion, uh, mindfulness, emotional intelligence, actually, um, and how much the Eastern uh, reality in terms of people meditating on their own and uh, would be enhanced by either a personal relationship for some with a therapist, for some with a community, um, with a teacher, certainly, if that becomes available. And it really is like worlds coming together. Um, and I want to just, in the few minutes we have left, talk about compassion and compassion for others, not only for ourselves, uh, and something about our making assumptions of what anxiety looks like or what depression looks like, when in reality, when uh, these are challenges that affect every population, regardless of circumstance, and, and we're, we're kind of siloed from that. And if we could get that perspective, uh, things would be different. And how do we get that perspective? Yeah. Well, that's, so, the, the, you know, I do think that there's uh, gifts that each of these traditions, Western psychology, Buddhist psychology, uh, are, are offering one another, that something, there's going to be an enrichment. And one of my initial sort of intents or, or fantasies or whatever, like of visions of, of how these traditions could come together is, you know, and you have a lot of therapists getting cranked out of different, you know, training programs and and if they all really were deeply embedded in the cultural and in, in the culture and practice and wisdom of the of contemplative traditions, they could really be like conduits, you know, for this into the lay world, so that people, you know, didn't have to get an app or 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 whatever. But um, you know, I think in terms of the importance of where where we are in terms of understanding. Um, the compassionate approach to the human condition that is one of the most beautiful elements of Buddhist culture um, is, you know, that, yeah, I think that part of the pathologizing 
of things like anxiety or depression or trauma or whatever is that you feel like you have to keep it secret and other people aren't having it. And so what could be, you know, uh, a great source of meaningful connection or even just understanding and compassion, like why is that person so cranky today? Well, maybe they're, you know, maybe they have some of the same whatever anxiety or depression that I have. Um, and I don't need to feel like I'm being personally threatened. Um, I can have empathy, mm-hmm. you know, but, you know, I think uh, having that sense of, you know, overcoming, you know, the, the privatization of, of mental suffering and recognizing that we're all in it together mm-hmm. and in a way you, you, part of our part of modern i don't even think it's modern i think a lot of uh you know uh explanatory you know, cultural systems tend to create and deal with our 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 uh suffering or fear or whatever by demonizing other people and saying you know they're the bad ones you know they're the they're the the not so human ones and in the Buddhist culture, I feel like, you know, part of the way that this is, you know, tr- very powerfully uh, addressed or engaged is to sort of recognize that people, people are good. Basically, everybody's good. Like, this is the thing about how we all come out of the womb, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not going to hurt anybody. Um, you know, but when we're controlled by destructive emotions that we don't understand and we can't, or, or delusions, confusions that we don't understand and we can't, we can't work with, we can't manage, we do harmful things to ourselves and others. And so the, so the focus there becomes on understanding, not only do I feel compassion for people who are obviously weighed down by suffering um, because I can feel like yeah, we're all human, we all suffer together so that my suffering can connect me to others and create a sense of commonality or solidarity. Um, But also to recognize that a lot of the horrible things that are happening in the world are happening because people never learned how to understand and deal with their, with their destructive, you know, the, the, the the confusions and, and destructive emotions in their own mind. And, and so really having this, you know, bigger perspective, you know, that, you know, learning to, to understand our, our minds and, and work skillfully with our suffering is, isn't a luxury. It, 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 it's an absolute necessity for all of us. And it isn't a private struggle. Like my personal, I have to deal with my anxiety. It's a collective, you know, challenge that if we don't all learn how to deal better with these uh, confusions and emotions that afflict us all, that, you know, uh, we're not going to, we're going to be living in a mess, in a war zone, in a zoo. Mm -hmm. And um, so I think that, that in that sense, it becomes more like, you know, the culture, Buddhism very specifically pinpoints the parts of our nature that are likely to cause us suffering. And does so in a way that that create that doesn't shame or blame or personalize and say, "Oh, only you have this, or only they have this." 
but says, we all have this and we better come together to work together on, on getting over it. Right. And so there's a kind of very powerful force of like wisdom or, or connection that could really be much more than any, because it has to do with such fundamental human qualities as, you know, uh, you know, narcissism or, or, mm-hmm. or, or, uh, or rage or, or panic or, or trauma that it really could cut across a lot of the, the boundaries of, of identity that, that often, you know, end up separating us and blocking our empathy. So I think that compassion is, you know, the, the mindfulness revolution was big. I think the compassion revolution is in a way even bigger because, you know, it's, well, I mean, I love the way you teach compassion, Sharon, and not many people teach it that way, that it has the essence, you know, I mean, that mindfulness has the essence of compassion in it. Mm-hmm. And that attention isn't, it's not just about paying attention. Mm-hmm. It's about paying attention with, uh, with a heart, with, with a kind of quality of care um, and if that way we understand in a way mindfulness is a form of compassion. And then there's this, you know, larger sense of compassion, stretching our compassion for ourselves to include all living beings, that there's a really important culture shift that has to happen. Um, and uh, yeah, that, you know, this, you can looking at the world today and probably any day <laughs> we yeah. see, you know, we, this is one thing modern culture hasn't tried. We've modern culture has tried to get rid of our contemplative traditions, right, and break away from them. And I think that's you know part of the problem that mm-hmm. we need to to kind of put them back in the center of of our uh, uh, of our you know values and and you know practices. So maybe that's the. Uh, I was going to ask you about next developments. What you saw. Coming, so maybe that is what you see coming, which would be really great. Like I know, psychedelics are a big conversation these days, and uh, as this next generation more and more destigmatizes mental health, maybe calls it something else, uh, more and more, um, we're heading for maybe you know really revolutionary times and certainly pioneering times. Yeah, I mean, I think that. I mean, as far as psychedelics go, I, I do think that that you know any way that that we can discover the power of our minds or the, or different capacities within our minds that that are not normally accessible to us is is a value. Any experience that does that, but also there's the risk. And I've spoken to I have a number of friends who are leading researchers in this area, and they're concerned too about the where culture tends to fetishize pills mm-hmm. and, and things outside of our mind, mm-hmm. you know? And so from that point of view, I'm not so sure, like it's not the panacea um, yeah. because ultimately like, you know, our brain is, is a psychedelic factory. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. And if we're not learning how to live in it and use it effectively, we can pump whatever we want into it. Um, but it, it's, it, we're not going to get what we want. Yeah. Um, but I think that in terms of, you know, uh, future developments, I mean, I do think that uh, people becoming more savvy about what 
happiness is and about what real health and well-being is and understanding that's that it's uh you know something that we need to be we need education and training for you know that we need to invest yeah. in it we can't it's not it's got to go beyond the app ultimately yeah um i think these these are extremely important and and i and you know i think what's i have to say I, i'm not a pessimist because you know I remember when, when you and I started out, like nobody knew about any of this stuff, yeah, right. you know what I mean? And it was really weird. You know, people thought like, what, what are you interested in? You know? So, uh, the fact that the culture has taken up these practices and this, you know, entertaining or, you know, exploring these other ways of looking at life and, 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 and how to cope with suffering and how to, how to cultivate real happiness. Um, is is like really a miracle, and it shows you what's possible um, in terms of cultural evolution. Um, and I think, you know, so I do think that, uh, you know, on the horizon, I see more than you know uh, the psychedelics per se. I think the like in the Indian tradition, they ultimately at a certain point abandoned psychedelics. They used to use them. Um, and then they decided to go with breathing. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, the, the, the next generation, like in my view, as part of the Nalanda tradition, there's an understanding that there's, there's the, you know, mindfulness working with our minds, compassion working with our hearts. And then there's these embodied approaches, mm-hmm. um, that involve speaking to our more primal, uh, uh, layers of the nervous system or usually unconscious with breathing or movement or, or image or, or poet poetry. Um, and, and that's, I think a next wave is looking at embodiment because, um, one of the new, uh, uh, research areas that's, that's kind of shifting the field as well is this notion is the sort of research on trauma and understanding Again, how much of our suffering is really individually and collectively isn't like a diagnosis, you know, like, uh, you know, you have an, a neurotransmitter imbalance, one of my least favorite fantasies, mm-hmm. uh, or, uh, but it's like, no, we've, you know, you've been exposed to chronic stress or you've been exposed to chronic trauma. Mm-hmm. And, and that's where the embodied approaches maybe uh, and a little extra oomph, mm-hmm. right? And I think um, if you're living a monastic life, it's the it's sort of taken care of because you're. You, I know you talk a lot about walking meditation, right? Mm-hmm. And and you're living a life that just behaviorally, like you have right. you have rituals, you have community, you have chanting. You know, you have a lot of things that are speaking to that older part of your mm-hmm. nervous system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, but I think of the embodied practices as ways that you kind of create the monastery in your own life or in your own community by, you know, working in very consciously to help your body feel safe. And, mm-hmm. um, and I think that's going to be a big uh, horizon as well. Um, yeah. So, I, I mean, I think there's, there, just like as, as, as 
you know, the, the incredible uptake and, and foment that you and I have seen. Um, I mean, I, I expect it's going to continue a pace, if not even faster. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I think that another area, you know, in, in sort of growth area or, or important area in my view is because Buddhism has had a special affinity with science and psychology because it's always been among the the spiritual traditions, some of the most focused on science and psychology. But I think bringing the other traditions, the other world contemplative Mm -hmm. traditions or indigenous traditions into the dialogue Mm -hmm. is also going to be a growth area because it isn't, uh, we need to not just, you know, uh, you know, give ourselves new awareness and skills. We need to kind of understand our conditioning and update, like the Dalai Lama says, your grandmother's religion, you know, like, like <laughs> you know, we need to really understand how our culture was conditioned and how maybe our early childhood, if we didn't grow up with the Dharma mm-hmm. um, and, and, and try to, um, and of course there are many cultures where, you know, contemplation comes in, in, in a different cultural matrix, you know, Mm -hmm. in Sufism or Kabbalah or whatever it is, you know, uh, Taoism. So, uh, I'd love for those traditions to be as engaged in dialogue with Western science and psychotherapy as Buddhism has been. Right. Because really this needs to be a global conversation and a multicultural conversation. That's wonderful. So thank you so much for this incredible conversation. Before we close today, I would love for you to lead us in a practice of some kind to finish our time together. Okay. Happy to do that. And partly what I'll do is uh, um, uh, use my, uh, just to get myself in the, in the spirit of things, use my Tibetan bell. I hope that that the sound will work. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, so please do get settled and try to feel the support of your chair, cushion, pillow, floor as metaphorically the support of the planet Earth that connects us all. And try to lean into it and feel in contact or feel you belong to that support, to that planet and the, all the life that it holds, you included. Maybe looking at your body, the rest of your body, and trying to invite it to settle in, right? To just try to get aligned with that sense of the grounding of your seat. Letting go of whatever tensions or restlessness, and maybe doing any shifting of your body that might help. And maybe now be aware of the breath and invite the breath in, maybe taking a nice long inhale and with the breath, inviting your awareness to gather into your felt sense of being in a, in a living body. Right. So as you're observing the in and the out, and taking especially that 
the opportunity of the in-breath to gather the attention from past and future, from this and that, and to bring it into a felt sense of inner connection with where you feel your body breathing, right? And maybe looking inside the body for, or feeling inside the body for a place where the sense of the breath calls to you where there's a, a kind of inviting sense of grounding or rest or stability or where you can sort of feel into the pulse of your, your life breath. And as you maybe invite your mind to breath at a time to settle more and more into that sensation of feeling in touch with the physicality of your breath, the felt sense. We also try to turn, turn your awareness to who or what is noticing the breath. How, right, what, where's the awareness, where's the observer, where's the part of you that's consciously attending. And maybe I'll invite you to uh, sort of let go of some of the normal chatter that might be in the mind, the normal flow or clutter of thoughts and images and emotions, and try to move toward whatever space of greater clarity or stillness, greater awareness might, might, you might find in there to make that kind of your new resting place in the mind and have a really light touch with all the stuff that's floating through your mind. Right, and then we're going to maybe just briefly now take that whatever inner space, greater grounding, like your, your, your awareness, your clear awareness grounded on the the felt sense of the breath and felt sense of the breath grounded on your felt sense or physical sense of being grounded on the earth. We're going to try to take that inner space of greater, more stable grounded awareness and maybe open it into a workspace or a learning space and into that space right in the mind's eye, trying to invite someone who the image of someone who sort of has what you want who inspires in you a sense of you know hope admiration inspiration that there's a better way to be human to to be in a human mind body nervous system right? and that can be a teacher it can be a relative it can be a figure that you only know through media or through literature or spirituality. Just try to have that being in mind as a kind of role model or guide and try to really welcome and engage that being in your mind's eye and sort of admire their way of what it is that about, about them that you want. You know, what is their way of being their peace or presence or kindness or whatever. 
and also now notice them regarding you with a sense of welcome, with care, with sense of possibility, and maybe seeing through whatever insecurities or suffering you you have to a deeper potential within you for you to have those same qualities that they embody. Right? And try to sort of use their interest, their care for you, their faith in you, their confidence in you, to use what they see in you to try to see in yourself that deeper Buddha nature, if you will, or potential for clarity and care deep in the heart of your being. And maybe ask for their help leaning into that, living from that, integrating that more into your life to work with the sufferings that, that you have, to work with the sufferings of others, and to kind of bring a greater sense of wise care to your life and to the world. And then really knowing that this is just a taste, ask that mentor to be part of your path, to be accessible in your heart, and imagine they melt into your heart. And they're always sort of merging with your potential, connecting you to your potential, so that, you know, recalling them helps you taste that. And now maybe just turn back to checking in with your mind and body, how this brief practice of mentor bonding has uh, has landed with you any thoughts or feelings maybe anything anything positive dedicate to your you know your journey your study and, and practice for your own sake and for the sake of all all those around you the whole world and maybe coming back to just the simple physicality of your breath <clears throat> and you know, as I ring, let's close this practice. Well, thank you so much for the beautiful meditation, and thank you so much for being here today. You are such a, a tremendous resource in this field, and I appreciate you sharing with us today and everything else you're doing. And so I'd like to point our listeners to your books as there are some great resources there, in addition to the numerous articles you've published in peer-reviewed publications. Your books are Boundless Leadership, Sustainable Happiness, and Advances in Contemplative Psychotherapy. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sharon. A real joy to be with you. Be well. Hey, folks. Thanks so much for listening. We would not be here if it weren't for your wonderful presence, attention, and listening. If you'd like to learn more about Joe's work or to get a copy of one of his wonderful books, you can visit nalandainstitute.org. N-A-L-A-N-D-A institute.org. And for all things Sharon, books, online classes to get a copy of her latest book, Finding Your Way, you can visit SharonSalzberg.com. This has been the Meta Hour podcast on the Be Here Now Network. May you be safe. May you be happy. May you be healthy. 
and may you live with ease.